right, how's everybody doing? Yeah, a little bit of energy. Nine was better. I'm sorry. I'm kidding. Everybody's like, gosh, he's so direct. Goodness gracious. Man, I love Dave. Me and Dave have one thing in common. We think outside the helmet, which means we just kind of say everything that is coming to our mind. I love it. You know, Dave's like, if you want to give to me, great. That's fantastic. You want to take me to dinner? You know, that's fine too. Put something in the box. We'd love that. Um, it's awesome. Yeah, it's so funny when, when Beth and uh, Sarah and me and Dave, when we're, we, if we do a double date or something, Beth's like, you two are just, it's just constant. You're just talking, just talking, just talking, on and on and on. Well, if you got your Bible, man, I'm excited about today. Um, and you'll be surprised by that because today is really about difficult circumstances and suffering. So you're welcome. Um, and, but if you got your Bible, turn me to Acts chapter 16. I love this section uh, and this kind of a portion of the book of Acts. We've been in uh, 13, 14, 15, 16. We'll be in 17 next week. Um, just the amazing narratives that are in Scripture. But I love it's kind of the book of Acts is the launching of the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. Like you've got... Um, the, the Holy Spirit coming in Acts chapter 2, and then you see the actual movement, the acts of the disciples. Like you see the Holy Spirit, how it reacts with people. I mean, it's the faith. the reason that you guys are here today is because of the movement of the Holy Spirit so long ago and so far away. This many years later, you're here hearing about Jesus because of the foundation of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the apostles that carried that news to the ends of the earth. And that's why we're here. But you get into, like, you've got the narratives of the gospel, like the stories that you see in the gospel. They're, 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 it's an amazing to traverse the book of John, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the gospels. And then you get into the book of Acts, which is written by a doctor, Luke. Um, and he is, you know, taking us with the apostle Paul, with all of the apostles um, through the movement of the church. And it's tucked right before the epistles. And what you experience in the book of Acts is, is what you, then you all, if you read it, you all of a sudden, you see why the Apostle Paul had to write the epistles. Like, like why the instruction is there for the first and second Corinthians. Because you got all these people that are coming to know Jesus, all the, the Jews, all the Gentiles, as the gospel spreads. But it's an amazing place to preach. But also, as I was reading this week, I just thought, I need, like, you know, I, sometimes I need a word from God. Like there's those moments. I don't know if that's the way that you walk through life. Like I just, or just a word. Sometimes I'm like, I'm not even picky. I'm like, God or anybody, please just tell me which direction to go or just say something that will encourage me. Um, and this particular week, as I was reading this, I just, by the power of the spirit, God just said, this, we need this word. Like you need this word. The church needs this word. And I just feel like somebody's come in here. Like you need a word from God. Um, and again, I think it's great to get a word from a friend, you know, somebody, a cup of coffee, but the actual, if you're looking for a word, this is actually a pretty good place to find it. Um, especially a word from God because it's God's word. Um, but the, the idea that some of you have come in here and I, I think that we found ourselves in that place in, in 2021. And I love that we're in a passage that's so old and that it's so relevant for us today, but you've come in and maybe the pressure started to mount. Maybe Maybe, I, I even just thought about this this week, some people, maybe even you, like 2020 was not this big thing for you. Like you weren't looking at the pandemic going, okay, it's the end of the world and this is the worst thing. Like you didn't, because of the circumstance you're in, you're like, that doesn't even, I don't even think about, it. I don't even have time to watch the news because the walls are coming in on me. Because I have had a relationship that I've been in for 15 years and all of a sudden somebody served me divorce papers and my world was torn apart. 
or you've gotten a diagnosis this, this year, or you've traversed such a season in life where you found yourself in one of the most lonely, depressing places in life. And so you're not even looking, you're not even thinking, you're like viral pandemic politics, racial reconciliation, great. My life is falling apart. I don't even think about that. And what, what, I'm, what I love about today is that our hope is, my hope is, and, and is that you would walk in here and not think, okay, I just want to hear a few good things from the Bible, hear somebody teach, maybe we could sing a few songs, but that you would walk in one way and that you would leave transformed by the power of His Spirit and the Word of God. Like something would change. And you know what I believe? I believe that's possible. Everything in me believes that that's possible for you. So if you're in a desperate place, if you're in a difficult place, I believe God has a word for you in this season. Something that's powerful. And not because I've got a great sermon on tap. It's because the word of God is absolutely transformative. It's absolutely transformative. You know, as I was thinking about Acts chapter 16, I was thinking this week, especially because Monday, our kids were out of school, Martin Luther King uh, Day, just even thinking just for a moment back to that, you know, where all that came from. You see pictures posted of Martin Luther King. Think, talk about, you know, we, we know that the country's polarized right now. You got people on different ends of the spectrum, but you see a picture of Martin Luther King. Most people, I'll repeat that, most people, we all kind of get on board and go, amazing what he did, amazing how he lived his life. It was in a time that was much different than the time that we're in, where there was so much movement in civil rights. Like in the transition between 1954 to 1963, not a lot happened. And then all of a sudden, there was this move of God, but also move of faithfulness on the part of Martin Luther King and a lot of people that walked alongside him, where they did it the right way, where they peacefully, but unwillingly to, to, to allow things to stay the way they were, they pushed for the freedom of all people, for the oppression to be lifted. They had been in a season where between 1954 and 1963, they, all of these laws were beginning to be put in place. The removal of the Jim Crow stuff, all of the, 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 the laws of the segregation laws were being removed. And then 10 years later, 1963, they're still in the same place and nothing had happened. They, even though the laws were in place, Cities all over the, the country were just ignoring them, still making people ride in different places on buses, still murdering people and hanging people. This isn't that long ago, 1963. But these people persevered peacefully, but didn't give up. How does that happen? And I, as, as I, I didn't know much, like growing up, didn't think much about civil rights. And then as I became an adult, I thought back to those, especially as I started to walk in, in, in step with Jesus and, and started to turn around and, and, and woke up to realize that Jesus is what matters in life. I started to think, how did these people persevere? How do you go through and do what you're doing and then have it not change for that period of time, but stay faithful and not go crazy and not allow it to turn violent? Violence was pushed on them, but Martin Luther King and, the, and his posse, they weren't violent. At all, by all means, they did things at peace. How did they do it? Well, a guy named Rick Rigsby, he was the um, chaplain at Texas A&M for many years, a motivational speaker now, amazing guy, um, was asked this question at a conference, and his response was simple. It wasn't poetic. He just said it was the way they worshiped. He said it was, it's the way that they engaged with God. It, it was the fuel for their obedience. 
And I just thought that's very interesting. When you think about it, if you've ever been to an AME church or an African-American church where things are, you know, I just tell you this, it's different there than it is here. First of all, it wouldn't be this quiet. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. If you go, like if, you, if you're there, they, and he, he, meant, he said that because they get after it. it, it is, this is not a spectator sport in, in, in terms of the way that he was describing it. We are going to get in here and we're going to get after the Lord. It's not going to be one guy and a bunch of people on stage playing stuff and everybody else sipping their latte and watching. There's going to be a guy in the back that's going to be going, come on, brother, preach it more. Why are you stopping? You're going to go there and you're going to, there's nobody's going to be looking at their watch at 1115 going, I wonder how long this is going to be. Is he going to wrap up and we can go to Cracker Barrel? Pack a lunch. You're going to be there a while. Better got a cracker in my pocket. I went years ago, me, Dan McFerrin, one of the elders here, uh, and another guy, we went to an AME church in an impoverished area of downtown, the urban core of Jacksonville. And I hadn't, I mean, I just hadn't prepared my heart to, to go in. We were, the, we were the only white guys in there. Um, and it was, it was like, I mean, it was just, it, it went off. Two hours of worship, hour and 45 minute preaching. And then the preaching really never stopped and the worship just kind of started and it all never, it was this big, one big thing. And for four hours, they got after it. One of the guys we came with, another black guy that we were there with, they knew that he played keys. They didn't have a keys player that could come back up. The other guy had to go do something. He jumps up on stage because the guy goes, come on up, brother, in the middle of his preaching. And he knew exactly where to jump in. He was like, the guy was getting in the high parts and he was right here with him, making you feel it. You felt it. Full participation. There was no, it was, it's call and response. And they, they, were, they, they put themselves in that position. They, they put themselves in, in, in that place because they're desperate. They're trying to persevere in the neighborhood that they come from. And you know what? Things might not change after those four hours, but they're going to put themselves in that position because it changed the frame of mind. It changed their reference point to the thing that mattered most, which was Jesus. And for us, we're kind of just sitting there because it's different because we're used to you guys, no offense. I mean, I'm just, it's different. It was amazing. It's, 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 it's this thing that's not for, it's not just something that should be in one church or the other. It is, it is what we see in the New Testament. It's what we see in the book of Acts that when, when the pressure cooker comes about, when the, when, the, when the pressure comes in, the refining fire comes in, there's an explosion of prayer and worship that moves God. And I love this passage because you see something here with the Apostle Paul, with Silas, in a way that just will change the moments we're in today in 2021. Maybe the way that we approach church, maybe the way that we approach the circumstance that we're in. So if you get your Bible, 16, we're going to probably start in and around uh, verse 17. But just to, to, to review, last week we were in Acts chapter 15, the Apostle Paul has come back to Jerusalem to settle some disputes because people were being weird. They were making people get circumcised that didn't need to be circumcised. They're like, hey, by all means, let's preach the gospel and not add any other extra burdens. Don't be weird. What's interesting is you start Acts chapter 16. He, gets, he goes back on a missionary journey. It's actually a long way from Jerusalem. He's going all the way up into Greece, into Philippi, which very important city in Rome, a very powerful city. They had won their citizenship. Very proud people run by the magistrates there. They get up into Philippi. They heard there's this kid named Timothy that's there. 
that is really going after the Lord, really a follower of Jesus. His mother's taught him everything. His grandmother's taught him all this stuff about who Jesus is. And he's like, we got to meet this kid. His dad was Greek. We don't hear much about his dad. So Paul decides, okay, Timothy's going to be in our crew. He's going to be part of this. He would eventually be one of the church planters at Ephesus. I mean, he was, ended up being a major player. I mean, there's books in the Bible called, you know, first and second Timothy. So he was one of the guys, but Paul along the way, after saying, Hey, you can't put this burden of circumcision on people in Acts chapter 15, he gets Timothy and he goes, Hey, you're coming with us. Exciting news. You've been dying to be a missionary and, and carry the gospel. Oh, um, oh, by the way, you're going to need to get circumcised. What are you talking about? Why is he asking him to get circumcised? This is how hardcore Paul was. Paul didn't want to put a burden on the Gentiles to get circumcised, but because he also didn't want, he wanted to live at peace with all people. And he wanted to preach in the synagogues and not offend the Jews there. So he's like, hey, you don't have to do this, but you know what? In wisdom, you're going to need to get circumcised because we don't want to offend the Jews. We want, an easy, we want to make this easy. You know, I, to the Jew, I became a Jew. That's a tough road to become a Jew if you're 25 years old. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. I just thought it was an interesting point, little sermon before the sermon. But as you get into uh, Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul rolls into Philippi, runs into Timothy, and then all of a sudden he runs into Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman. She's having a Bible study by the river. Now she's of mean. She's, she is, the commentary says that she would have had a political, to be powerful in Philippi meant you were really powerful. Like you were political, you had a political influence. You would, and she would be one of the church planters in Philippi. The Philippian jailer, this, what, this uh, slave girl that we're going to get ready to talk about. These are the three people that end up planting the church. I love this. You've got a, somebody that deals in design and clothes. You've got a, a jailer and then a demon-possessed slave girl plants a church. So church requirements for planting a church, you know, there you go. Pretty powerful church in Philippi. But anyway, they get there and Lydia's a God-fearer. She's wanting to find out more about God. She's got women together and they're studying the, the Old Testament together, studying the scriptures. And then Paul comes in and brings the scripture to life. They all get converted. He ends up spending some time with Lydia, him and Silas. And then he goes out the next day and he's, he's preaching. Now there's this girl that's following him around, this slave girl. He knows that she's got some sort of spirit that's inside of her because she can tell fortunes and she's making money for all of these guys that own her. And so she's cruising around and she's kind of doing her thing, but then she gets attached to their caravan. And it says in 17, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days, which you wouldn't think would be any problem, but it says, finally, Paul became so annoyed. I mean, it's interesting, right? You think he, she sounds like she's, oh, she's on our team. What's he doing? Why is he upset? At first, it made me think of this idea, like the Apostle Paul was very sensitive in every culture that he went in. We'll find that out even more so when, when he heads to Athens. But he, he always was attuned to the people. He did not want to be an annoying Christian. He wanted to lead people to faith. I will be all things to all people that I might save some. I want to meet people where they are. I want to understand and know the culture that I live in. I don't want to be a separatist where everybody's like, all the Christians are just out in Montana with bonnets and churning their own butter. No, he wanted to be in the cities where people were and understand people. So this woman is just shouting the entire time they're there. And it just made me think, of course, it's like, you know, you work at Everbank, you're in a cubicle, you got somebody you've been witnessing to for two years, and then you've got 
Betty, the annoying person that's over there that's ruining it all. You know what I mean? She's like, let's all sing to Jesus when she comes into work. And you're like, please take it down about a hundred pegs because they're never going to want to talk to me again about Jesus. I mean, you're just in the process of talking about where the dinosaurs went. And here's Betty just blowing it all for you, talking about Jesus on high in the workplace. Annoying. But there was more to it than just that. We don't want people being annoying. We want to be good evangelists. But he also knew that there was a spirit that was in her that was causing a problem. So he turned around and said to the spirit, in his annoyance, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Now keep in mind, the spirit was the only thing that was keeping her telling fortunes. So it was the best commodity that she had with her slave owners. So verse 19 When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the market. This happens so fast. It's like all of a sudden, cast demon out. Ah! They grab him, drag him into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating unlawful, by advocating customs unlawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. I mean, this happened so quickly. Things were going well. Lydia, we got to hang out at the rich lady's house. She became a Christian. Fantastic. We hung out. We got Timothy on board now. We're, we're in a good place. People are getting converted. Demon cast out. And next thing you know, we've been drugged into the city. Everybody's shouting and hates us and we're getting beaten. I mean, circumstances changed in a heartbeat. Verse 23, after they were severely flogged, and I want, I want you to understand, they were severely flogged. There's a reason the adverb's in there. Like they were severely flogged, painful. We sometimes breeze past this. These guys were beaten in a way that none of us really can understand. But maybe we've seen movies where it makes a little bit of sense. But they were beaten. They were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell. So he put them in some of your translations in the middle of the prison or the center of the prison and fasten their feet in stocks. So first century people just let you know it's dark in there. Like there's no lights. They're not giving the prisoners, hey, keep this candle so you'll be warm and feel great. No, they're in the dark in a prison in shackles and they're bleeding on the floor and they can't go anywhere. And they don't know what's happening the next day. They have they have no idea what's coming. Now, verse 25, I just want to read two words in verse 25, and we're going to stop for a minute. It says, about midnight. About midnight. Now, many times we'll, we'll cruise through this passage and we want to get to another portion and, and hear the story, but I want to talk a little bit about midnight because I think, I think you and I understand midnight. At least most of us do. Because I think there's, like I said in the beginning, I think there's people that have come in here and you know what it's like to have the walls come in. You know what it's like to be in, in that place that, that we're going to call midnight, where you're wondering, where's God in this? I've given my life to him. Why cancer? I've given, I, I, I'm, I'm in the, for once in my life, I feel like I'm walking faithfully and doing, doing good in life. And all of a sudden, Everything has gone wrong. I'm walking with God, but I'm the loneliest that I've ever been in my life. And doubts begin to creep in. 
I've gotten a diagnosis and all of a sudden in that moment, I'm wondering, does God really exist? How would he allow, I see suffering, I'm experiencing suffering. It's midnight. Everybody, I think, understands the idea of darkness. And if you haven't ever experienced it, you will. Because every, and you're welcome. Everybody bleeds. Everybody walks through it. Everybody has a moment where they're experiencing midnight. And a lot of us could say, yeah, we just experienced 2020. That was a big midnight for a lot of people. It caused a lot of problems. But like I said, there's people that are looking at the pandemic. They're looking at the news, the election, and it means it is small potatoes in comparison to the pain that they're experiencing emotionally or the pain that they're experiencing physically or the pressure that's on them. We understand midnight. And this is what is happening at midnight. And this is unusual. I just want you to say, now I said last, last week, don't be weird. And we shouldn't be weird Christians. Like I, I just, it's not good. We're, we're wanting to invite anyone and everyone into the unending ocean of grace. If, it's, if we're gonna be able to lead people, we wanna be real and raw and honest with people. Not weird, but unusual, yes. And this is unusual. This is an unusual response. And I'm, I'm you know, I don't want to throw out a platitude like when you're in the midnight zone, when things are falling apart zone, when you are losing your marbles and everything seems to be being torn apart, I'm not telling you that this is everybody's automatic response. I just want to state this is what happened with Paul and Silas. About midnight, bleeding out in the middle of a prison, it is pitch black, dark. They think, I don't even know what's coming tomorrow. It says Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They were praying and singing hymns to God. That's unusual. That's, a, that's, a, that's something that would stick out. In fact, it continues, it says, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, I think that's interesting. In the middle of their circumstance, about midnight, they were singing hymns. They were praying. And it says, and the prisoners were listening. Now, surely there were some prisoners that were cynical, going, are you kidding me? This God just abandoned them. They were beaten, and they're probably going to get beheaded tomorrow. Why are they worshiping or praising? But there were some of them that are wondering, how is it possible they're in a much worse situation than I am, and I hate myself in this prison right now. And they're singing, and I can hear them. What is that? How is that even possible? What are they anchored to? What does that to a human being? And I just want to say this clearly. It's one of two points I have today and we'll be done. But being chosen, it's a long point, being chosen and powerfully used by God and difficult circumstances are not mutually exclusive. I want to repeat that. Being chosen and powerfully used by God on one side, and difficult circumstances are not mutually exclusive. So here's the problem that exists. We think we get in the lane with God and start doing the things of God and start operating as good Christians, and we believe, okay, that's going to keep me away from trouble. But the problem with that is it's horrible theology. Because what we see in Scripture is the ones that faithfully followed God ended up in the pressure cooker of refinement. 
They ended up in that place where God used the position that they were in. They used this place that Paul and Silas were in. They used the places that John and Peter were in to turn on the pressure cooker, to refine them like gold and like silver. The refining process where you heat it up and all the impurities come to the top. In that pressure cooker of circumstance and suffering, it changes you. It adjusts things in the way that you see life. It adjusts your lens. It's the only way these guys were able to worship. They're, they're, not, they're not mutually exclusive. They're, it seems weird. You think, I'm, I'm powerful. my most powerful moment will be when I'm strongest. But your po most powerful moment might be when you're, you've been beaten down and you're at your weakest. It's, an, it's like an oxymoron. I mean, it's a little different than like, Jumbo shrimp. I mean, it's not that type of oxymoron or fun run. I always loved that one. I dropped the, uh, you know, Microsoft Works oxymoron, but only the nerds laughed last service. Uh, but in the kingdom of God, it is different. You see that people are used mightily in their weakness and in their most difficult moment. You see this powerful thing. God God might use you most powerfully on the worst day of your life. I could probably ask some people in this church because I know you have been through unbelievable circumstances and walked out the other side. And I've seen some of you walk very faithfully. And I could have a share of hands. Who's walked through suffering? And there'd be a lot of people. Now, that doesn't mean like I lost my keys. It's terrible. Or I was trying to find a parking space and I prayed and it was opening up. And then all of a sudden, this car pulled in. They had a coexist sticker and I was losing my faith. It was terrible. It's not that type of suffering. I'm talking about walking through it. There's a lot of people that have walked through it. There's a lot of people that are in it right now. In your heart of hearts, what you're experiencing, what you're feeling, the circumstances that are around you that you've tried to control your entire life and now all of a sudden you're unable to control. There's something that's possible in this moment. And that's, Lead me to my second point, that midnight worship illuminates Jesus. And this just isn't about what's beneficial to the people around you, but it's also what's about, it's about what's, what's beneficial to you. But midnight worship illuminates Jesus. You know how it does it? It illuminates Jesus because it illuminates a God that is bigger than your trials. It illuminates Jesus in your trust that you've placed at Jesus' feet back to God. It tells them that when you're in that place of worship, in that place of prayer, in the middle of difficult circumstances, it says to God, I trust you. I've seen your faithfulness in the past. I've seen that you can raise the dead. I've seen your promises for the future, and I'm going to sing about them, and I'm going to get on my knees and lay everything that I have at your feet. And it reflects to the world around you that you're anchored to something different than this world has to offer. It illuminates Jesus. Worship when the lights go out. Worship at midnight. It changes things. It changes things. And worship in and of itself, singing's not a weird thing. Like we all, I mean, everybody in here sings. Like you do, you, you, you guys do it. And a lot of you shout and jump at events. Maybe not at church, but you do. Like worship in general, especially when things are going good, not a strange thing. Like you guys, human beings shout and cheer. Now, some of you are like, but in church, some spread basket, that's all I do. But anywhere else, Coldplay concert, you're like, woo! 
you know, you're in it. But that's not unusual. What's unusual about this story is worship at midnight. Beaten in the stocks. It's unbelievable. You know, Louis Giglio talks about it this way. He talks about this idea of midnight worship. And I, and I, I remember this from years ago. Just that we, we understand how music works and the keys of music. Like a, a major key makes you feel what? Happy. You know, key at C, woo, you know, it's, it's happy. And then all of a sudden, roll into a minor key. Uh, and what, what does it make you feel? Sad, you know, thinking about things, just distant, you know. It does something different. There's nothing more powerful than the key of midnight and what it amplifies to the world around you and how you walk through circumstance. When you are worshiping in that place, saying, in the face of your trials, what you believe about God. That's powerful. You know, I was thinking about, you know, years ago I was at, at River City and there was a guy named Jack. He used to worship in the front, front row. And, and uh, I, I know I said some things about weird worship last week, but he was, he was like an expressive worshiper. Like he would get in the front row and when nobody else was like into it, dancing, raising his, I mean, it, he, he didn't, his, he stayed like this. Like he didn't, and he was, he was into it way more than Dave. Like Dave's into it, man. He gets, he gets in it. But the, the dude, he, was, he would come out of his skin all through worship. And it was so real and it was so raw. There was something about it that, that would move you. Now, some of you would think, that's just weird. I don't know what's up with the guy that's just doing the thing. You know, he would just get into it. You know, he was all over it. But what was great is he would have an opportunity and we would have an opportunity to explain who he was and what he was walking through because he had incurable cancer. And he, he was on this awful chemo drug that uh, it was for a, a blood cancer that made him, the fatigue that he experienced was off the charts. When I say fatigue, people hear that word and they're like, oh, that's somebody that's just tired. No, I'm talking about cannot get out of bed. Like you have to talk yourself for a half hour just to move from here to here. But he did not miss being at church and being in the front row in worship. He would, he would out-worship all of you. And it convicted me. There was a holy conviction in my heart when I knew his story and I would see him worship. It changed me. I thought, I have not, I don't have, I have, my kids are healthy. My world is good. Things are amazing. And he laps me over and over again in worship. How is this possible? I've experienced God's grace. I've experienced the common grace of just eating great meals and being healthy. And this guy who is in the middle of a trial out worships everybody in the room. But he would say, y'all are missing out. He wouldn't say, this is what you have to do. This is what he, he would say, you get to do. This was his response to the God that he trusted. He was looking towards his glorious future. He was looking at God's faithfulness in the past. He was looking at the cross of Jesus Christ and going, if you defeated death, then what am I going to face on planet earth that can come against me? And he, was, he would explode. And it changed things in his heart. And it changed the people around him, Christians and non-Christians. It was so powerful. 
I remember years ago when I was going through a bunch of stuff in my own life and I was, I had gotten cynical. Like in the beginning, like I have, some of you know, I had this weird, I, undiagnosed neurological disorder that put me in pain, put me on my back. I had a mattress in my office. It was just a terrible, terrible season for about three and a half years. Dark, depressing. I mean, just thought terrible things about what my future looked like. You know, it was all over the place with doctors. And I'd gotten, in the beginning, you know, you're like, I love Jesus. I will be healed. And then two months later, you're like, I don't know if I believe in God. I mean, it just doesn't take long for us. You know, we think we're these strong banners of faith. And then all of a sudden you're just, I'm so done. If another person says, come to this prayer meeting and get prayed for, for healing, I'm going to flip my lid. It's like, I am not doing that. But I remember it was a couple years into it and somebody asked me to go to a, a Christian concert. And I can be cynical about Christian concerts, but I love them. Don't let me be because I go and I'm crazy and I go crazy with, with, at the concerts. But in this season, I, I didn't want to be there. didn't want to go. And uh, it, Matt Redman was leading and he just amazingly. And I was almost fighting wanting to engage. Uh, and then he sings the old song, You Never Let Go. Anybody remember that one? And I was just standing there, you know, doing the, you know, I'm not going to get into this, locking the hands down, you know. And then, of course, I'm, and I'm in the, I am, it is midnight in my life. And then, oh, no, you never let go through the calm and through the storm. And I'm just like, no. And this is tears. And then I can see a light that is coming. I mean, I was just, it, I exploded. And I realized freedom was found there. Like I, it wasn't something that I had to do. It was like there was all of a sudden I needed to put my trust in Jesus. Nobody else was going to rescue me. The doctors weren't. I realized in that season, and I love doctors. And if you're a doctor in here, I know plenty of you. Shans, Mayo, you, have, you don't have a clue in comparison to God when it comes to the human brain and the neurological system in our bodies. But God knows everything. And I put my trust in him. In that moment, it was like beginning to boil up in my life. It was so amazing to feel that free, to let go, to cry and admit to God, I am dying right here. Just mentally, I, I was exhausted and I needed to release myself to him and say, God, I, I trust you. And I'm telling you, it was the road to a lot of change in my life where I could say, I trust you. If there's a solution, there's one person that I know has the answer and his name is Jesus. And I'm going to give my life to him. Worship reminded me that if death's defeated, then what else am I worried about? It changes you. It changes everything about you. And Paul and Silas, if you, if you look at this passage, we'll pick up in verse 31, but I want, I want to catch us up. They're there at midnight they're singing praises to God. There's other people that are watching them. And it's illuminating the gospel just in singing at that moment. And then what happens? A lot of you know this story. The foundations of the prison begin to shake. Walls begin to shake. The whole place is shaken. whole prison. I mean, in the pictures you see on the felt board, it's like two guys and then there's another prisoner out the little window right there going like this and he's felt and he's awesome. But this is a prison. This is Philippi, big old place. I mean, you've watched prison movies, big old place. The whole place is being shaken. Prison doors swing open. It's pitch black, dark. It's midnight. And the jailer that's there, that's on guard, the head guy, he's like a Navy SEAL. I mean, this is the Roman Empire. And you screw up in the Roman Empire, 
you're going to die. All of the gates have flung open. He knows it, he's feeling around, and he's thinking, all the prisoners are leaving. All the prisoners are gone. I'm going to die. So what does he do? I might as well kill myself. And he about does it. And then Paul and Silas are obviously in his proximity. And Paul says, we're all here. Don't kill yourself. We, we didn't go anywhere. Can you imagine the whole prison? Everybody, something is so powerfully happening right now. All the people that are in prison, all the, Paul and Silas haven't gone anywhere. And so all of this stuff has been going on. And this jailer's thinking, I don't even know what's happening here, but I need these two guys right here that are talking to me. I need to know what's up. So he, he asks them, he says, how, how can I be connected to, how can I be attached to whatever it is that you believe? I want to know God. I want to know how to be saved. And so in verse 31, they, they replied to him. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Simpler than you thought, man. And you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Could you imagine? Like it's, I don't know what time it is by now. The jailer's going home to his wife and his people. And he's like, honey, uh, I got some people, some prisoners I brought over for dinner. I don't know. I did, they're, this, they're the good ones. They're good ones. And then the whole household gets saved. And they were baptized. And the jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and they were filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. You want to know how evangelism works? Worship at midnight. We, we, want to, we want to waste, we want to get past the season of suffering. And I'm, I'm telling you, I'm in it with you. I'm not telling you something that I, I, I see this as difficult. We want to get past the season. Come on, 2021. Come on, 2022. Let's get past this and then we'll serve the Lord. Let's get past this. Let's get past this trial and then we'll serve the Lord. God will use you like never before in the middle of your suffering. He will, there's an, there's an amplifying factor that is exponential when you worship and you pray at midnight. There is a big, bright, beautiful light that you shine on Jesus that in any other phase of your life, you will not be able to accomplish. But in the throngs of the valley, you will be able to. It changes things. It doesn't just change things about the people around you. It doesn't just preach the gospel in your worship and in your prayer, but it also changes your lens and your perspective. It changes something in your heart. You see, worship, it's good for you and it's good for the, the gospel movement. But I, I look at this story and I think, I don't want you to, to get to this place and think, I don't, you know, of course, okay, I've got trouble, you know, write down. This is the the list that, of things that I need. I need to worship like Paul and Silas, and then I need to pray, and then things will get better. But you would be missing it dramatically because Paul and Silas, they're not, they're not there. They're, of course, they're coming to the one that has the solution. But they're not looking for stuff from Jesus. They're just looking for Jesus. They're not wanting to... to to be free of something, they're wanting to be enraptured by the Holy Spirit. They're wanting to be in connection. They're wanting to be in communion with Jesus. They just want to be around him. You know, I was thinking about parents and their kids. You know, when they're, when they're young and you're walking through, you know, 
a, a strange place or anywhere. Like, you know, I said the mall in the first service, like malls exist anymore. Um, you're walking somewhere and your kids don't know you. My daughter, I remember she just would just reach out and just grab my hand. It was like automatic. Like, dad, he's right there. I don't feel safe. Grab the hand. And you love that. And there's something in when they're younger. And I tell you, if you're a young parent, cherish it. Because I know you're like, if they call my name one more time, I might die. But there will be a day when they stop calling your name. And then you can't, you, you, you're desperate for them to call your name. You know, my daughter's, you know, I remember if you get older and teenagers, like all of a sudden they go from that to, why are you here? You know, they're just wondering, what's, what are you doing? You know? And I remember one night, my, my daughter got into a little car trouble. It was late. She'd been out with friends and um, she tried to deal with it on her own. And, and then she called me. And I think you think as a teenager, you think, I don't want to call him because he's going to be mad. Something's wrong with the car, da, 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 You know, last thing you want to do. And then she doesn't know that on the other end, I've been dying for this phone call. You need me again. And she calls me, dad, daddy. You know, she's wanting dad, you know, it wasn't like that. Ella's so capable. She's like, dad, I got an issue. Um, but she was just like, dad, I, I, and she started to explain you know, what was going on and, and all this stuff. And, and here's, the, here's the beauty of it. You know, I, and I wasn't going to go, what, I'm not going to go fix it. I can't fix a car. I was going to take it to Buster's and get it fixed there. But I know I needed to be present. Like I need to be there. And that's what she needed. She just needed to be with me. She needed to, to be with me in that moment. It wasn't going to fix the, all the, the stuff. I knew the guy that could fix all the stuff. But it was about reaching out in that moment. It was about, and here's the deal. God, he, he's dying for you to, to need him. He's wanting to shout to you in your weakness and in your suffering, I am made strong. Do you trust me? Call out to me. I will come to you. I am right here. My hand has never left at the same position it's always been. I just want you to reach out with your little hand and grab hold of me and say, I am weak. I am broken, but I trust you. I want to sing. I want to, I want to look and I want to remember all the things that you've done for me in the past, Dad. You've always picked me up when I was down. You always held my hand through the mall. You've always walked with me through the storm. I believe that. You're capable and you're sufficient. I look at the cross. I know what you can accomplish. I trust you. I believe in your promises for the future. They didn't just want a solution. They wanted Jesus. They didn't have their hands in his pockets. They had their hand around his neck saying, I love you and I know you're sufficient for me in our weakness. That changes things. There's power when we cry out to a God that is waiting He's waiting for the rebel to come home. He's waiting for the one that thinks that can take care of it themselves to finally get to the point where they can't take care of it. And they pick it up and they say, I need you. I can't do this on my own. Somebody in this room is in that position right now. And God's in here right now with his arms stretched out for you. Just like he stretched out his arms on that cross because he loved you with everything that he had. He poured out his blood for you. Of course, he's gonna meet you in the valley. And what's cool about God? It's amazing. He might not eject you out of all your circumstances. He can, but what he will always do 
is inject himself into your circumstances. And he will never leave you or forsake you when you're walking through the valley. Never. Let's pray. God, we just come to you knowing and believing and trusting in our spirit, in our heart, in our mind. Sometimes we forget, but in our spirit, we know that you're sufficient to save and to rescue. God, lead us always, always back to you and your name and the power in that name.